Well, I don't, I don't remember the topic or even the text at the time, but I do remember all the details surrounding probably the most difficult, uh, one of the most difficult sermons I've ever preached. Haven't preached many, but this was one of the most difficult sermons I've ever preached. Uh, uh, we used to live in Pohang, South Korea. Some of you know where that is. Some of you don't. That's fine. It's down south about three hours. And I actually worked at the high school there. I was the Bible teacher, but I was also the assistant to the lead pastor at Hantong International Congregation. I was not the, which is the university church. So I was the assistant to the lead. I was not the assistant pastor. I was the assistant to <laughs> the lead pastor, which is, which is true. It's, one of, it's true. I was the assistant to the lead pastor. And... Um, Part of that was that I preached once a month in one of the earlier sermons um, during my time there because the lead pastor I really looked up to. He was kind of a larger-than-life sort of person. I mean, my life still is today. He's a spiritual mentor of mine, but especially at the time. And so when that's the case, you know, you really want that person to, to really view you highly. I mean, that was the case for me, which is important to the story. But it was pretty routine. It was a pretty routine Sunday morning. Um, I, was, I was going to go print off my sermon that morning at the, the high school that I worked in, which is right next to the church. I was getting it printed out. Everything was going well. The printer worked. Yeah. And everything, everything was going well. And then I, I went to this, back to the space, the church space. I was greeting people, you know, doing the pastor thing. And then I, about five minutes before the service started, I took a glance at my manuscript. First few pages were fine, but... Somewhere in the middle there, there were two pages that had combined with the previous printing job. And so it was illegible, 100% illegible. You could not read it. And so it was, it, was, it, was, it was strange because it just looked like a different language altogether. It was just words on words. And I looked at it, looked at the clock, saw Pastor Greg take the stage, starting the service, looked around, then thought to myself, I got this. I, I know this sermon well enough. It'll be fine. Um, and, you know, I'll look super modern, so I'll get out my phone just in case, and I'll read the sermon through my phone if I need to. No problem. You know, like, I, I got this. And, and in the back of my mind, I'm thinking, well, if I do say something to the staff about getting it printed off, it'll look like I wasn't prepared in the 11th hour, and then he's not going to view me as highly as he would have. Um, so... There I was, sermon was going great, um, until page five. <laughs> and um, page, got to page five, and I realized how colossally bad my idea was, uh, because I did not know it as well as I thought. And then I got out my phone, as I said I would to myself, and I, I, I realized every time I touched the screen to scroll, it would just go back to the beginning of the page, and I brought it closer to my face, and it seemed like as time started to tick and seconds started to go, the words started to get smaller. And it was so difficult to read the sermon through the phone. Couldn't read it on my manuscript. And, you, and as you know, five seconds of silence when you're up here and there's people feels like a minute of silence. And there I was, five seconds at a time, just ticking away. It was awful. Then after the sermon, and hopefully, and by the grace of the congregation, nobody got up and left and, you know, the Holy Spirit works in amazing ways. So he can do whatever he wants with whatever spokesman at whatever time. So I don't know what was happening then. But 
I do know right after the service, one of the staff came up to me and said, what was the issue? You know, what was the problem? And I explained my situation. And her, her, her words struck me. She said, I would have been happy to help. I could have gone home, printed it out for you, found someone who could have done it. We would have made sure that it was there in front of you before the sermon started. But in all my panic and anxiety of the situation, my reaction had been to try to take care of it all by myself. As scared as I was of the idea of preaching without words in front of me, I was more scared to admit that in the last minute I didn't have what I needed. I wasn't fully prepared. I had made a mistake and I didn't have a backup plan. My own stubbornness and fear stood squarely in the way of my asking for help. My pride prevented me from reaching for help to someone that was able to help. She said, I would have been happy to help. Have you ever been in that type of situation? When something goes terribly wrong, you're in a position where you probably should just ask for help, but for whatever reason, for mine it was pride, it was stubbornness, but for whatever reason, you don't ask for the help that you need. Kind of like when I try to carry all the grocery bags at once. Even though I know it's too heavy, I say, honey. And we live in a culture, and I think it's true here as well, but we live in a culture that values self-sufficiency. It values accomplishment. And I think we start this at a very young age. Stubborn toddlers take forever to get dressed or put on their shoes, retorting, mom, I, I got this. Rather than asking for directions, I never do this, we drive in circles or we get lost, insisting we know the way. When putting together that new bookcase, the instructions are tossed aside. After all, how hard can it be? Surely we can figure it out on our own. No need for the helpful instructions that were provided by the manufacturer. And a successful businessman may boast that he's, self, he's a self-made man. No one has given him anything. He's accomplished things entirely on his own, and we wear it like a badge of honor, even though if we dug a bit deeper, we might realize it's never fully true. This human tendency to refuse help or pretend we don't need it can make, it, can make our spiritual journey difficult, if not impossible. You see, to have faith means from the very beginning that we acknowledge God, that we are not Him, that we need Him, that we are utterly dependent on Him. We can do nothing apart from Him. One famous theologian, John Calvin, said it like this. Men will have no taste for God's power until they are convinced of their own need of it. And they immediately forget its value unless they are conditionally reminded of their own weakness. The reality is, a self-sufficient attitude disqualifies us from God's help because we think we can do it on our own. We don't recognize that we are sinners. And so today, we enter into a passage of Scripture that teaches us just that, that we need help and that there is a helper, that there is a God who keeps us and keeps on keeping us as we seek Him. And that's what we're going to learn today in Psalm chapter 121. We're kept, amen? 
We are kept. I know we can go testimony after testimony of God's keeping in our life. But we are kept every single day. When things are falling apart, we're kept. We're kept in the grace of Jesus Christ. Now, if you've been here with us these past several weeks, uh, you'll know that Pastor James has been going through the book of John. What a blessing it's been. I know in our missional family, uh, it's been wonderful conversation, wonderful discussion, uh, convicting, challenging, encouraging. And alongside that, uh, that sermon series, we've also been going through a sermon series called Behold. And Behold is, serves as the word of the year for us here at FVC. And of course, the idea of that is to behold the person of God, who he is. And as we behold Christ and his person, we become more like him as we fix our gaze on who he is. And so in this series, we're looking at the promises of God, what he said he would do, in order to learn more about his character. And the promise today, of course, that we're looking at is the promise of God's keeping, that he keeps us, he helps us. Really, you could say there's two promises that we're going to look at. He helps us and he keeps us. Before we jump in today, just I want to start just a bit of context from Psalm 121. It's part of a collection of 15 psalms known as the Songs of Ascent. And the Songs of Ascent were sung uh, each year. The people of Israel traveled from their homes to the Holy Land uh, for various feasts, uh, various festivals. And on this journey, sometimes it was perilous. It was difficult. Uh, there would be robbers that would come because they knew that they were coming. They knew they were going to make that trip. They calculated when they would come, and they would come and rob them. So it was unsure if they would be robbed or killed on their way to the Holy Land, but they were commanded to go. Or weather would get in the way, and they would have terrible weather, and people would lose their goods or be injured or lose their lives. And this was the reality of this journey, this trek to the Holy Land. Now, I don't know if anyone in here has hopped on a plane to go to Israel, to go to the Holy Land, to make that trek. Maybe some of us have been to Israel. But how is this for us, this journey to the Holy Land, this song of ascent? What does that mean for us? Well, our, our road to heaven, our road to the New Jerusalem is much longer than the dozens of miles that they walked, but no less treacherous and difficult. We carry God's promises with us, but... Life still often feels desperate and uncertain. Temptation hides and it strikes. Trials ambush us and our, our loved ones. Besetting sin lingers. Disasters come unannounced. We feel the need to be kept. And we feel this need to be kept because we cannot keep ourselves. And with that, through this psalm, Psalm 121, I want to show us today three truths about God's helpful keeping. Three truths about God's helpful keeping. Truth number one, if you have your Bibles, we're going to be in the first two verses of Psalm chapter 121 here. And that first truth is this. The Lord is your only true helper. Let's read that in verses one through two. I lift up my eyes to the hills. Where does my help come from? My help comes from the Lord, the maker of heaven and earth. 
What beautiful words. Brought a lot of encouragement to many believers throughout the years. Definitely worth memorizing. Uh, But they tell us several things about God and who He is and and what His help provides. As we look at this text, I, I want us to first consider the context of the meaning of the word hills. I lift my eyes to the hills, or in some versions, the mountains. And we know that in Israel, there are a lot of hills. Uh, But culturally speaking, hills actually represented a couple of things. First, hills represented protection. Hills were a place where you could go and hide and maybe not be seen as much in your journey. Hills represented protection from certain weather conditions that might be coming. Hills represented this place of strength and protection, but they also represented worship uh, because uh, in those days, a lot of the, the temples that were built, I'm talking pagan temples, they were built on a hill. So here we have, I lift my eyes to the, the hills or the mountains, a place of protection that provided shelter, but also associated with worship. And then the question comes, and this is a question we should often ask ourselves, a question that we need to ask ourselves today. And that is, where does my help come from? We see the response. He answers right away. He doesn't leave us in any suspense. He says, my help comes from the Lord. So in other words... We are choosing not to put our hope and trust in created things, and we are not going to turn toward idols, but we will look to the creator, the one who made the hills. We're going to seek our help in the one who made the heavens and the earth and everything in them. Charles Spurgeon, another theologian, said this, the providence, the provision, the proved faithfulness of God are the hills to which we must lift our eyes, and from which our help must come. Really, the key word in these first two verses of chapter 121 is that word help. So I want to stop there for a second. What what, what does that mean in the original? Well, help means, of course, to to aid or relief or support. That's what it means to help. But it's much more than that here. The word help here is not used as one who assists you as you lead the way. It's used for one who rescues you from situations you can't handle on your own. Help here is protection from danger, strength for burdens, peace for difficulties. And this is who the psalmist says God is for those who trust him. So the question we're faced with right away is the question that the author asks which is, what is your source of help? In your times of need and in your times of frustration, when things are crumbling and crashing around you, where does your help come from? Is it found in created things? Or does it come from the creator of all things? And there are many hills in this world, many things in this world that we can turn to when we're in need. Maybe it's social media, Maybe it's food, maybe it's a relationship, a friend, or a career. So many things are out there that promise full fulfillment, promise to supply all your needs. But when we turn to anything other than the Lord, we will always come away empty. 
And there are good means for help that the Lord has given to us. Family, friends, your church gathering. And we should be attached to these means of that grace, this means of that help. But we should not neglect, of course, the source of all true help, who is our Lord. In the Lord, there is all the help you need. He is a sufficient help in times of trouble. He made you. He knows your need. And if you put your faith in him, then he's bought you into new life. He's at work in you, so why would we ever turn to anything or anyone else? If you're a creature, we're created, then our only possible help today is found in our creator. Uh, there's a classic gospel song. I believe Elvis Presley did it. I don't think he originally wrote it. Uh, but it goes like this. Who made the mountains? Who made the trees? Who made the rivers that run to the seas? Who put the moon in the starry sky? Someone much bigger than you or I. And that's really the call of the psalmist here. The psalmist tells us to look past the hills, to look a little higher, to look past the sky and past the stars. Don't look to anything in creation when you're in need. Look first to our creator because the creator is your one true helper. And also what we see here is that the Lord is your keeper. The Lord is your keeper. I'm going to be reading verses 3 through 6 from chapter 121 now. He will not let your foot be moved. He who keeps you will not slumber. Behold, he who keeps Israel will neither slumber nor sleep. The Lord is your keeper. The Lord is your shade on your right hand. The sun shall not strike you by day, nor the moon by night. It's interesting because I think some versions might word it a little differently, but in the ESV, the word keep, I think uh, some versions say watches over, but the word keep is used six times. It's the same word in the Hebrew. Six times the word keep is used. It's almost as if the psalmist is so absorbed with the thought of his keeper that he barely even names his dangers. He says over and over again that that one word, which fuels his faith against his fears. Six times in these few verses, he considers that God is the keeper of Israel and the keeper of himself. And instead of considering only the danger around him, he chooses to fix his gaze, to behold his gaze on the one who keeps him. And this is actually why I felt moved to, to share this text my, my wife and I, not long ago, sat down and read through the small book of Jude. It's one chapter, so like, very briefly. Uh, but Jude writes in the doxology of his letter these words. Now to him who is able to keep, to keep you from stumbling and to present you blameless before the presence of his glory with great joy. To the only God, our Savior, through Jesus Christ, our Lord, be glory, majesty, dominion, and authority before all time and now and forevermore. Amen. And so as, as, as we read through that, and since then, I've had this phrase actually in my mind and, and in my prayers. And it's been, Lord, keep me kept. Keep me kept. Um, as, as our family's been consistently considering together the responsibility of raising children, 
and growing a family to be centered on the gospel, it's hard at times. It's difficult. And I think this promise in particular, the fact that for those in Christ, we are kept, and he is keeping us right now, is one of encouragement. Now, if we look back in Psalm chapter 121, uh, the word keep can literally be translated as to guard or to watch. And the point here is that if you follow the Lord, trust in him, and if you are on this journey with him, then he not only helps you when you're in need, but he also keeps you. He watches over you. He protects you. And then the psalmist says, he will not let your foot be moved. Other versions say he won't let your foot slip. And again, keep in mind the context here. They're on a journey, and they're all wearing sandals. I mean, I have a tough time walking anyway with shoes. But you got sandals on this journey, you'd be slipping, you know. So he doesn't let your foot slip. And it might seem kind of trivial to us, like, oh, I'm not going to let him fall. Like when you're making a journey that long and that difficult to slip, sometimes could mean life or death. If you're running away from a robber trying to chase you, if you're on the edge of a cliff, do not let my foot be moved. He will not let your foot be moved or he will not let your foot slip. And you see, when you walk with the Lord, your feet are always on solid ground. That's why earlier in the Psalms, King David wrote this. Psalm chapter 37, verse 23. The Lord makes firm the steps of the one who delights in him. David knew that the Lord promises to make our steps firm to those who delight in him, to those who love him. So the psalmist here, I believe what he's saying is that he's assuring us that God is not an absent father. He's not a God who created us and then just chooses to turn his back on us and be uninvolved in our lives. Far from it, actually. It says there in the text, God doesn't sleep. He doesn't slumber. Meaning, he is continually watching over and keeping his people. He is the God who is considering us as at literally every moment of our lives. He's deeply concerned and cares for us. We, however, require sleep. We gotta sleep. Sometimes we don't sleep enough. Some of us sleep too much. But we require sleep. But the one who keeps us does not. He will go, we will go to sleep tonight, but God does not sleep or slumber. And you know what happens while we sleep? When we get some shut eye? God keeps going. He who keeps Israel will neither slumber nor sleep. So you and I can run frantically through this life trying to get all these things done as if the world will fall apart if we don't. But every single day for hours we're laying down and we're sleeping. When you and I are, 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 are heads down at night, we can fall asleep knowing that the one who keeps all things and the one who holds all things together and the one who loves us and is committed to caring for us and is providing for us is working even as we sleep. And this isn't saying the equivalent of like, he never turns his phone off at night. Or, or, or something like the adult version of um, a baby monitor. You know, you're allowed to lie down and sleep in hopes that the baby monitor will work. It's much more significant than that. He never sleeps. He never dozes off. He never slumbers. 
He may be called upon at any time, in any place, in any circumstance. And I I believe that this is said about the Lord in clear contrast to false gods, to pagan gods. Because if you get to 1 Kings chapter 18, we read about the prophets of Baal trying to reach out to their God. And when Baal didn't respond, there is this awesome interaction between the prophet Elijah and the prophets of Baal. And Elijah says this in 1 Kings 18, 27. He says, shout louder. Surely he's a God. Perhaps he's in deep thought. Or he's busy. Or he's traveling. Maybe he's sleeping and just needs some waking up. There's nothing like some good old divine trash talk, let me tell you. (laughs) But the implication here is that if your God is sleeping when you need him, then you don't have much of a God. But our God is always awake. He's alert. He's attentive. He's available. He never falls asleep. He never even gets distracted. You can talk to him at any time, any day. He's always there to hear you. So I guess the only real question that follows to that truth is why don't we? Why don't we call on him at any time of any day? Why are we slow to go to him for help? Why don't we prioritize setting aside time to be with him? How how can we be so foolish? Everything else that we turn to slumbers. It sleeps. So let me simply encourage you today, continually turn to the Lord. Every time you see a rocky path ahead of you, every time the road ahead is foggy or unclear, when you feel that your foot might be slipping, lean on the Lord and trust in him. You can rest today because he's always awake. It doesn't matter what problem you're dealing with. You can leave it in God's hands and and go to sleep at night knowing that God never slumbers nor sleeps. He's in control and he will take care of you. Amen. And our final truth here that we'll look at today in Psalm 121. The Lord will keep you from all harm. The Lord will keep you from all harm. Let's consider these last two verses together. The Lord will keep you from all evil. He will keep your life The Lord will keep your going out and your coming in from this time forth and forevermore. When you looked at the first six verses, you'll notice that the the pronouns are personal. It's me, my. But now we're seeing a shift here. I'm so sorry, that's later. Forgive me. That's later. Got ahead of myself. But in the first six verses, there is also a different change. And the different change is that It was present tense, but now we're seeing the shift to future tense. He's telling us what God will do for us. And the overall message right here, uh, directly in the verse, it's the Lord will keep you from all evil or harm in some versions. And, And what that means, first of all, is that God watches over every aspect of your life. That's exactly what verse 7 says. It says he will watch over your life. And, and that word evil, again, is, is sometimes translated as harm. And so the point here is that as a follower of Jesus, you might have 
problems on your journey, but in the end, evil will never win out. There is nothing that can get you off the path. There is nothing that can separate you from God's love for you. And this is one of the verses that I think people love to be able to quote. They love the idea that, that God will not allow any harm to come to them. Uh, but you have to be careful with that type of thinking because many have fallen away from God because of that type of thinking. They're told that God will never allow them to be harmed. Then they are harmed. In their life, maybe it's sickness or it's death or it's a, it's a terrible accident. But now they're confused. They were under the belief that nothing bad could happen to them. Then something did. But the challenge, I believe, is how we view what harm is. Most people view the temporary things of this life as things that can harm them, while sickness, pain, and death are painful in this life. None of them can harm the soul for eternity. And Jesus actually addresses this in the book of Luke, Luke 21, 16 through 19. He addresses this in his earthly ministry when he says, You will be delivered up even by parents and brothers and relatives and friends. And some of you, will, they will put to death. You will be hated for my name's sake. But not a hair of your head will perish. By your endurance, you will gain your lives. In other words, even in betrayal or death, the believer still comes out on top. You see, if God is for you, no evil, no permanent harm can come to the believer in Christ. You can trust God's providential care because God watches over every aspect of your life. This is why Martin Luther in that great hymn was able to say this. Though they take my life, though they take my goods, my honor, my children, my wife, yet their profit is small. And why is it small? Because Luther was able to say along with Paul, all I have is Christ. You see, where this could go south for us is if we, if we have not come to the point where ultimately all we have is Christ. If my security, my confidence is based on health or my wealth, then it's a disaster when those things are taken. All purpose and meaning is taken from me. But if my security and my confidence is in Christ, then all those things are taken from me. Then again, as Luther says, their profit is small because my help comes from the Lord who keeps me and keeps on keeping me. The psalmist also writes here in Psalm 121 that the Lord watches over both your coming and your going. And I think this is, this is an example of the writer expressing two opposites to explain the, the totality of something. So he's always watching over you. He's watching over your coming and your going. He is always there watching over you. And the idea of coming and going has, has another significance to it. It, it. It's actually oftentimes used in war terminology. It's, it's the picture of going out to battle and then coming back. So the idea is that as you go out to the battle, as you face the trials and the troubles of life, God is going to bring you through them. And at the same time, he's going to bring you home. And of course, I think this is a picture of our eternal place with him. That yes, God keeps us here on earth. 
He watches over us and protects us here on earth. But in the end, the greatest truth is that he is guiding us home to be in perfect union with him forever. To the place where there is no more troubles, both now and forever, the Lord is our helper. He is our keeper, and he will not let us be harmed. So we've discussed those three truths today. But now the question that I want to ask is, who does the Lord actually help? Who does the Lord actually help? Who is this promise for? Can you actually say, the Lord is my helper? Because let's be clear, we don't deserve it. We, we don't deserve the help of the Lord. We don't deserve his keeping. That's the clear message of scriptures that we have all trusted other gods. We've placed our lives in the hands of other things, gone to other hills. And so not only do we not deserve the Lord's help, but we actually deserve to be separated from him. He should keep his distance. So who is the you here? And again, I mentioned it before, but you'll notice that the, the, the first two verses they were more personal. It was a me, my. But, but now we're seeing the shift to you in verses 3 through 8. So to whom is he referring? Well, right here in the Psalms, we know that, that it's the people of Israel. It's the Lord's people. It's those that were traveling to Jerusalem to glorify and worship the one true and holy God. These are the people that the Lord protected, even despite their sin and Rebellion. He protected Isaac from sacrifice. Joseph, when he was in prison. The whole nation, when they were enslaved in Egypt. He provided for them during the time of the judges. For David, when he was running for his life. For the remnant who were captured by the Babylonians. Over and over again, God was Israel's helper. And yet, they kept turning from him. But here's what we also know. We know that while the Lord always helped, at one point he did leave the temple. After the Babylonian captivity and the rebuilding of the temple in the promised land, his presence was no longer physically with the Israelites. That is, until 500 years later, one man walked into Jerusalem. And when Jesus walked into the temple for the first time, the glory of the Lord had returned to the temple. Because he was and is the glory of God. And only he could really read Psalm 121 and say that he truly looked to the Lord as his helper. That when the road was rocky and the trials came, Jesus didn't look to others for his help. He trusted the Lord and his promises. Jesus looked to the Lord for help. He trusted the Lord in his comings and goings. And ultimately, he went to the cross and took our harm, our evil, he took our evil so that we could be kept from it. Jesus alone deserved to be kept. He deserved to be helped. He deserved to be protected. He's the only one who never looked to any hills and always kept his eyes on the kingdom and on his father. But yet, he died. And because he died for us, we can receive the Lord's unending help and protection. If we would just put our faith and trust in him. So again, let's ask. I'm going to ask the praise team to come up. But let's ask, is the Lord your helper today? Can you read the promises of Psalm 121 as promises for you? You can if you have confessed with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believed in your heart that God raised him from the dead. 
You can know today that he will never leave you or forsake you. Jesus can and will be your help. But if your help is not in Christ today, you have no real protection from this world. You have no lasting security or stability, no foundation to stand on. But if you are his, you can sing along with the rest of the saints and with the psalmist here, my help comes from the Lord. Why? Because the Lord himself took on flesh, not just to help our daily struggles, but to take our guilt and our shame, and in the end, to take us home to be with him forever. Let's pray together as we close.